It's my job to introduce him to the students. And I'm in so much anxiety about him sitting there looking like the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we're doing a meditation program, that I give a very long introduction. I look over at him and he looks like he's falling asleep. So I end it with this very traditional supplication for him to teach. And I say, I want to request you to turn the wheel of the Shambhala Dharma. I hear him say, turn it yourself. The entire audience bursts into laughter. <laughs> that, that moment of public unmasking was probably the greatest embarrassment I've ever experienced. Eventually I had to accept that's what he did. And then it was gone. And then he was teaching and he was teaching with such tenderness and such love. The cognitive dissonance of him sitting there in this military uniform and this kind of gentle, loving bath that he was giving 300 people that he had never met before. It was just, you know, it was a moment that I will never, I'll never forget. And, and then I realized later that it was probably one of the greatest empowerments of my life, that he actually meant that, that he was sort of saying, stop being such a chicken and turn it yourself. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrup. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Welcome to this week's show. I am absolutely thrilled to share this week's interview with you. Uh, My guest is Frank Berliner. He is a psychotherapist. He's a retired professor of psychology at Naropa University, which is where I met him many years ago. And Frank was a student of the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Chagyam Trumpa Rinpoche. And this really is why I started this podcast, to share these types of conversations with you. He shares a lot of his stories about his time with Trumpa. He talks about Actually, Crazy Wisdom, the name of this podcast, he shares with us the, the lineage of that phrase and those teachings. And I'm just, I'm just really thrilled to share it with you. It was such a rich conversation that we went a bit long and I did not want to cut a minute of it. So we're going to share this as two parts. We're sharing the first part today and then later in the week, we will publish the second part. Um, so if you like what you hear, please do subscribe. That way you get the second half of the interview. So if you hit the subscribe button, uh, wherever you get your podcast, that'll just be downloaded to your device, ready to go when the second half of this interview is published later this week. So again, thrilled to share this conversation with you. Here's Frank. Welcome to this week's show, Frank Berliner. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, Luke. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's such an honor and a joy to see you again and to have this time to hear some of your stories and just catch up, two old friends catching up. I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Frank is a psychotherapist and a retired professor at Naropa University. That's where I met Frank many years ago. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Frank, you know, this show is called Crazy Wisdom. And I first came across this phrase in a classroom in Boulder, Colorado, in one of your classes. And it's, <laughs> a, it's really been a guiding principle and kind of a way of being for me over all of these 20 plus years. And I thought maybe mm. the best way to introduce you to our community is to have you share what is Crazy Wisdom. Okay. Thank you. I'd be happy to. So, a crazy wisdom, 
uh, comes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So the first important point is that it, it evolved out of uh, Buddhism and out of the teachings of the historical Buddha originally, with a very important, what I would call stylistic difference, which is that the, the Buddha, without going into a lot of detail, after he attained enlightenment, lived his life as a monastic, and all of his students were monks and nuns. Uh, so that the model of the Buddha, you could almost call it the archetype of the Buddha, which has come down over two and a half millennia, is of this uh, peaceful, wise, gentle, kind, and compassionate monk who withdrew from the confusion of the world, which he referred to as samsara, and taught a way of uh, liberation. And this particular archetype of the Buddha has continued up to the present day. But there have been other archetypes of the Buddha that have arisen historically, and, and probably the most dramatic arose in Tibet in the 8th century, which would have been more than 1,200 years after the Buddha's lifetime. And that was the example of a spiritual master called uh, Padmasambhava. The Tibetans called him Guru Rinpoche, who actually brought Buddhism to Tibet. And he brought Buddhism to Tibet after a number of other teachers who had been trained and manifested the monastic style tried to bring Buddhism to Tibet and failed. And the reason that they failed was because the Tibetan culture and the Tibetan mentality was extremely what my teacher used to call raw and rugged. Hmm. And the sophistication and kind of the peaceful manifestation of the teachers who brought Buddhism to them was something that Tibetans were very cynical about. And it did not land with the energy of their culture. So finally, this teacher named Padmasambhava, which literally means the one born from the lotus, uh, he hmm. came to Tibet after a number of other teachers had tried to bring the Dharma to Tibet. And he succeeded. And the reason that he succeeded was because his style of teaching was ex extremely direct, unconventional. And instead of trying to impose a particular model of Buddhism on the Tibetan people, he just entered into their culture and joined them where they were. They, had, they already had a spirituality. It was very animistic. It was nature-based. It had the energy of the power and elemental power and, frankly, you know, life in Tibet was very harsh, and <laughs> death was always present. It was a very, very powerful situation. And their spirituality came out of that. And Guru Rinpoche, instead of trying to introduce this kind of other sophisticated, peaceful model, just joined their culture. And <laughs> what he did was he gradually transformed all of their spirituality into Buddhism. So this is a really, really important point to understand <laughs> about the, the, the style. And he was, he was known as a crazy wisdom teacher. Crazy wisdom here was that he was able to, at his core, manifest this wise, peaceful, gentle being. But his uh, skillful means, his way of relating to uh, situations in Tibet was extremely, uh, uh, could be con confrontational, blunt, and direct. So that his approach to what you could call dismantling ego was absolutely uncompromising. And this became known as crazy wisdom. Now, the literal word for crazy wisdom in Tibetan is uh, yeshe cholwa. And yeshe means wisdom. Cholwa means, uh, the closest translation is gone wild, wisdom mm -hmm. gone wild. But what has to be understood is the wisdom came first. In other words, Guru Rinpoche was already completely realized in that traditional way that the Buddha 
attained enlightenment. He had this uh, tremendous wisdom and equanimity and understanding and uh, meditative realization and inner discipline. But his activity in relating to the energy of the culture that he came into completely uh, met the culture without trying to uh, change it, without trying to step away from it and hold himself as being higher than it. He just engaged it completely. And his engagement was often referred to as uh, wrathful compassion. Hmm. And I, uh, this is the last point I want to make before we you know, go, go into maybe you know, back and forth about some stories that I have in my own life. But crazy wisdom and wrathful compassion in this tradition have to be understood as being inseparable. In other words, people can get seduced and almost sidetracked by the dramatic qualities of a teacher's manifestation of crazy wisdom mm -hmm. without understanding that every behavior of the teacher is a form of compassion or skillful means. That is almost the most fundamental point I want to make, is that the craziness is the manifestation of compassion. So it's not just wild for its own sake. It's not just wild for its own sake. Every manifestation of crazy wisdom is about dismantling ego, because the teacher understands that ego is the source of our suffering. Mm -hmm. And so the dismantling of it is a, always a compassionate act. So it's not so much that crazy wisdom is dramatically trying to impress people, but crazy wisdom is the accurate meeting of a compassionate, realized being with the insanity of the materialistic samsaric world. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's as pithy as I can make. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. So when we're rooted in a depth of consciousness in our own being, and we have living from a place of wisdom, we can kind of meet the moment that's in front of us in whatever uh, form it's taking. So perhaps that's things that are unorthodox or unusual that's, to that's some, cool. but when we're rooted in a depth of consciousness, that dance with the materialistic world can liberate ourselves and those around us. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. actually, in one of my teacher's practice texts, he says, he subdues what needs to be subdued. He destroys what needs to be destroyed, and he cares for whatever needs his care. Mm. So the, the manifestation of a crazy wisdom teacher can be at times very abrupt and terrifying, and mm -hmm. at other times incredibly kind, even on the, almost at the level of seductive. It, whatever energy is happening in the situation, the crazy wisdom teacher has the confidence in his or her own realization that they can meet that energy completely and accurately. Hmm. So the confidence is in the accuracy of the skillful means of the way of expressing compassion. Because the whole motivation for any Dharma master is to help people go beyond their, help beings go beyond their suffering. That's the only motivation. It's the only reason that a teacher is even in the world. <laughs> so unless we understand that that compassionate intention and that wisdom essence are the ground for the whole thing, we can get very easily confused by some of the manifestations of crazy, of crazy wisdom. Right, right. One more line. He says, mm -hmm. he talks about the crazy wisdom manifestation of Guru Rinpoche, and he says, his anger, devoid of hatred, 
is as fierce and terrible as if the three worlds were on fire. Mm. So there he's distinguishing between the anger of a neurotic being who is suffering and the wrathful compassion of an awakened being who is trying to wake people up to what's real and what's Mm. true. Mm. Okay. Wow. Beautiful. So that's the root really of this, this lineage of crazy wisdom. You had the great fortune and, and put yourself in a situation where you spent quite a few years with really the persona, the embodiment of this lineage, uh, maybe more so in, in, you know, in the last hundred years, more than any other teacher, which was Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. And Yes. I'd love to spend some yes. time today just hearing a bit about your experiences with this kind of remarkable man and teacher. You know, he wrote a book titled Crazy Wisdom, which is one of my all-time favorites. And in that in that book, he yes, talks indeed. about, yeah, <laughs> he talks about making a home with our irritations is kind of at the root of crazy wisdom, right? Like so often we, our habitual pattern or the ego wants to push away things that are uncomfortable or experiences that maybe confront our idea about who we are. And in the crazy wisdom tradition, we make a home with those. We lean into them. We, we breathe in suffering. I mean, I'd love to just hear from you. Like, what do you, Trumpa's transmission of crazy Uh, uh, wisdom, how does that live in you these days? mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say that image you did about making a home in irritation. You know, one of the expressions that he used is, when you go into a skid, turn in the direction of the skid. Mm. I mean, it's completely counterintuitive. And of course, turning in the direction of the skid is actually how you come out of the skid. Mm-hmm. But it, it's that kind of counterintuitive thing of that which which you fear is that which you need to turn, to, to confront and turn into. And if you don't do it on your on your own, the teacher will do it for you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you were saying, e- ego in that way. Ego is this constant uh, search for comfort in the midst of what is fundamentally a groundless uh, situation that we find ourselves in, a situation that's impermanent, that leads in the end, certainly for all of us, to death. And there's a starkness about the underlying ground in which we make our life that ego is not at all prepared to accept. Mm. And so, you know, he, he talked a lot about the, the lords of materialism. We don't need to go into a long description of them, but the whole mat- culture of materialism, uh, what Trump Rinpoche was saying is that it's fundam- ultimately it's based on a fundamental dishonesty, which is that it's based on the attempt to constantly shield ourselves from the reality of impermanence hmm. and death. Uh, hmm. So the historical Buddha, and the peaceful Buddha will bring others to bring that to the attention of their students in a very sort of gentle and gradual. And there was a part of Chogyam Trumpa that was very traditional. And when he taught the Dharma, he was bringing that to us in a gentle and gradual way. But a crazy wisdom teacher also brings it to his students in a very abrupt, direct way, uh, which is sometimes called pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, And pulling out the rug out from under you simply means confronting your attempt to hide from the reality of situations by using your the masks that you have adopted in the culture to sort of navigate it without being found out. Hmm. And and the the other point there is that what he was exposing is that materialism and ego 
are built on a ground of what Western psychologists, and Trumper and Bichet like this term, called uh, existential anxiety. Mm. That, that there's a part of us, actually the wisdom part of us knows that fundamentally there is no ground under this project of constantly trying to pretend that we exist in a certain way. And the Buddha historically and conventionally taught about this, as I say, gradually introduced students to this. But the crazy wisdom Buddha introduces students to this abruptly. And so a, lo a lot of my experiences with uh, Chagam Trumpa were about being introduced to this abruptly. Introduced A, to my existential anxiety, <laughs> and B, to all the strategies that I had to pretend that it wasn't happening. Mm. Um, and, and I think that becomes almost the hallmark. If you, I think if you talk to any of his close students, all of them had that experience at least once, if not many times. And then you had to make a decision about whether, is this a path that I really want to follow? It, because it, it, it's, it, it can be very scary. Um, and the students who said yes, could somehow feel that, yes, this is, this is the way for me to confront my own denial and dishonesty. And I welcome it, even though it's scary. So it's like turning... He used to say, if, the, if you stay too far away from the teacher, you don't get enough heat. Mm -hmm. But if you get too close to the teacher, you'll get burned. And so it's very much about, you can't even strategize how to find the right kind of Goldilocks zone with a teacher mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. But, but it's very much about energy. You know? right. And if you stay too far away because you're afraid, then you never get the warmth and the blessing of being with such a teacher. But right. if, you, if you come too close, you know, the message will be very, very direct. Like it's like touching an electric wire. Uh, that's the only way I can describe the energy of being around yeah. a teacher like that. Yeah. And I had quite a few experiences of it. And if you read, you read my memoir, you know. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. It's this is the. So we understand kind of the the root and the kind of framing of what crazy wisdom is. And for you, it very much manifested in this teacher in front of you. And I've had these encounters with teachers over the years. It also, I think there's a way in which it can exist in just putting ourselves in experiences that take yes. us out of our habitual yes. patterns and Absolutely. practices that deepen and expand our capacity for depth right. and consciousness and love. And so there's a lot of different ways that we can work in this kind of tradition of crazy wisdom that doesn't always necessarily mean following a teacher. The teachings can be the path, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, it's very good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. So can I say a little bit about that in terms of, course. of tradition? Yeah. What you're pointing at is actually encompassed in the tradition. The distinction that you're making, which is an absolutely essential one, is the distinction between the teacher as guru and the phenomenal world as your guru. Mm -hmm. And so a genuine master of crazy wisdom, particularly, will constantly be giving you the message, you cannot simply rely on our relationship in order for you to develop spiritual. You have to learn from our relationship how to understand where the truth in situations is and where the deception is, where the compassion is, where the ego is. But then you have to open yourself to your whole life. Your teacher isn't always going to be with you. In the case of Chogyam Trumpa, 
when the Chinese invaded Tibet, he had to leave Tibet at the age of 19. He left all his teachers behind. He never saw his guru again. His guru died in a Chinese prison. And, you know, his heartbreak at losing his teacher at such a young age was something that, you know, he had to go on his whole life without that umbilical cord anymore. So the point you're making is extremely important. Unless the the relationship with the teacher has helped us to see how to take this wisdom into our life in the world, long after the teacher in in person is no longer in our life, we've wasted the opportunity. Hmm. Part of this show and our community is really built around storytelling. And I finished your memoir not so long ago. The book is called Falling in Love with a Buddha. And it is just such a deep and beautiful kind of love story about your relationship with Trumpa, um, raw and, and honest. And it, it really interweaves the relationship with your, your own father, right? And I was just so touched yes. by it. And oh, there's yes. just... Right. So, so many uh, wonderful stories. And I thought maybe, you know, part of the show is just sharing some of these stories in the crazy wisdom lineage. And um, my thought was, you know, today we might hear a little bit about, I mean, just to start, like where, where and how did you meet uh, this remarkable man? Yeah. Grumpa. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. I met him when I was uh, 28 years old. And at the time I was living in Vermont and had lived there for four years. And I was a kind of very overeducated hippie. And I had dropped out after teaching for two years in the ghetto of New York City, alternative service as a way of staying out of the Vietnam War. So I grew up in that generation where we knew the war was terrible. We knew it was just based on a lie. None of us were willing to go and and uh, fight in it. But because of the structure of the military service, we had to find alternative service. And I taught in the ghetto for two years, and then they changed the rules. They, they came up with a lottery system, and I realized that I had a high enough number that I no longer had to keep evading the military, that they weren't going to call on me. My wife and I moved to Vermont, where her parents had a summer home, and then we just stayed for four years. And during that four years, we kind of did this back to the land life, and uh, we became interested in meditation, mostly transcendental meditation. And there was one person in our group there who was just sitting, and I was very, very impressed by his equanimity and just by his stillness. And I asked him, you know, where did you learn this? And he told me that his teacher was Chirgan Trumpa. At the same time, Chögyam Trumpa started Naropa University. It was called Naropa Institute, the, the college that you ended up going to. And I've heard of that place. <laughs> in, the, in the summer of 1974. And um, so I decided I wanted to uh, meet him. Oh, I should also say that during that time, after I found out who this teacher was, I was given one of his books. And it was called Meditation in Action. It was the first book of his that was published in the West. Mm. And I read the book while I was making maple syrup. Because when you make maple syrup, you have to wait for a long time for the sap to boil to get the syrup. It takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. So you have tons of time. And I'm sitting in the sugar house and I'm reading this book. And the book, I had read other teachers, Krishnamurti, Ramdas, Alan Watts, all of whom impressed me. But there was something about this book, I think it was a sense of humor and the feeling of Mm -hmm. just profound kind of groundedness Mm -hmm. that really drew me in. And so I I wanted to find out who is his teacher. Uh, And so I ended up traveling 2,000 miles to meet him uh, that first summer at Naropa. 
And mm-hmm. without going into a lot of detail, you can read the memoir if you want to get mm-hmm. the detail. But my life really fell apart that summer. Our, our marriage fell apart, yada, yada. And then when I came back to where I'd been living in Vermont, I discovered that he had a center 60 miles 60 miles from where I'd been living. And so I had made this 2000, I'd made this 2000 mile journey, uh, had my whole life fall apart, then come back and find out that he, that he had a center only 60 miles away. And I ended up moving there. He would visit four times a year. So after I'd been living there for a couple of months, he came for a visit. And even though I had studied with him that summer in Colorado, there were a thousand students there. There was no opportunity to actually meet him. Mm-hmm. But now I finally, in a, in a group of about 40 or 50 students who came to his seminar in Vermont, I finally had the opportunity to meet him in person for the first time. And that's really the first story of having the rug pulled out. So yeah. yeah. I both chuckled and grimaced at this story in your memoir. Um, I'd love for you to just share, you know, share with the audience here about your first encounter with him. And Sure. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 So I should say, my first encounter with his force field was in mm-hmm. Colorado, and my life just completely fell apart. My marriage fell apart. Of it was just total, you know. But then when I came back, and then I decided, okay, move to his center and start studying and practicing the Dharma for real. Uh, then he actually shows up, and then I have an opportunity to meet him. Mm-hmm. So this this was at the end of about a ten day uh, workshop. We'd given many talks, and there was a kind of a, a, a goodbye picnic for him. We were told in advance you have an opportunity to say hello to him and to introduce yourself. <laughs> so it was at the end of this long and fairly boring picnic, and I was feeling. First of all, a little sad that he was leaving and I wouldn't see him for a number of months. But I also knew it was the first time I I had ever had a chance to meet him in person. And I was quite anxious about the whole thing. That anxiety kept building. And then finally there was a receiving line and I'm standing in the line and a number of people are going up and he's just sitting very in a chair, very, very still. His stillness was just uncanny. Uh, you know, and people would come up and introduce themselves. And I just watched the way he would relate so fully to whatever was happening and in different ways, depending upon the person. And then as soon as the person left, he, that, that stillness would come back. So finally, it was my turn. And I was, you know, at this time, I worked myself up into such a tizzy. And basically, given my ego trip, I wanted to impress him. I wanted to impress him with how much I understood of his teaching. And I wanted to show him what a good student I was, how he should be really happy that I was his student. But as the day went on and as the line got shorter and as the time, I realized, you can't do that. He's going to see right through that. And then I would go, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Of course, all this is going on in my mind like a hamster on a wheel. And he's just sitting there. And so finally, it's my turn. And I walk toward him. It's about 20, 25 feet. Till I'm, I walk toward him so I can be standing in front of him. And I'm halfway there. And I hear him saying, don't try so hard. And I realized he was talking to me. By the time I got in front of him, it was like my entire hamster wheel had just collapsed completely. And I was left with absolutely nothing to say. And I just stood there in front of him, both of us in silence. And then he said to me, more. And I looked at him and I said, more what? He said, 
relax more. And so I tried to. And and we stood there in silence. And then he nodded his head to indicate this interview is over. Mm-hmm. And that was my first meeting with him. So there was a sense that he simply read my mind and energy as I approached. It, it was this feeling of being completely unmasked, that, that he could feel the panic of my attempts to come up with a story and a version of myself that would impress him. And he just cut right through it. And he did it in a very gentle way. And if I look back, he only said five words to me. Well, maybe seven. Don't try so hard. That's four. More. That's five. Relax more. That's seven. That was it. Uh, So I don't know if I've conveyed to your viewers uh, the power of that. But that was the first of my many, many uh, encounters with him. And of course, as I continued to study with him and practice and mature my understanding, I had more and more opportunities to be with him. And then, you know, ultimately, he asked me to start representing him in various centers and to teach, but not until he had um, sort of dismantled me over and over and over again. Yeah. So that by the time he was asking me to teach, uh, I couldn't consider it a credential. I could only consider it a kind of um, confirmation that I had begun to surrender my sense of self-importance and also my facade of hiding that underlying anxiety that a really powerful teacher exposes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's like so, this this groundlessness that you describe, and as far as it's just a dis, you're disoriented. You you can't quite grasp onto your <laughs> you, this solid sense of self, right? And you're left kind of floating, not knowing who you are, or how to relate to the world. And um, in your completely. memoir, you yeah, you talk, and I think we've all, most of us have had these experiences where something jarring kind of takes us, snaps us out of just the habitual thought loops and leaves us unsteady and really great teachers like Trumpa did this in a very unique way for each person's kind of karmic imprint. Right. So for you, for you, it was, I I think there's this, like in your memoir, you talk about several just very public um, experiences of him pulling the rug out from (laughs) under you, because that's what you needed. Some other folks maybe needed something more private or more gentle or more fierce, but each of us kind of have this way, right? What you're saying there is so important that his, the the skillful means of a crazy wisdom teacher is that it's totally accurate to the particular situation and the Mm -hmm. particular student. So whereas one student, it might happen in one way with another, it would happen in a completely different way. But yes, that public unmasking, well, that was the chapter that I said to you. Should I just briefly talk about yes, that? Yes, of all? course. Yeah, it's such a, okay. such a potent example of crazy wisdom. Sure. And let me say also that you held up the t- my cover of my book, Falling in Love with the Buddha. My working title for the book, before I ended up with that title, uh, is the punchline of the story that I'm about to tell. Okay, very so good. I, I'm not going to say I need yeah, to yeah. You know, tell the story. All right, so at this point, I was the national director of Shambhala Training. You know, the first really, um, I don't want to call it prestigious, but sort of weighty teaching and administrative responsibility that he gave me. And this was, I think, 1982. Yeah, 19, I think it was in 1982. And uh, Shambhala Training in those days, 
you went through uh, what we call the undergraduate levels, which ended in level five. And in the first four or five years of Shambhala training, level five was very special because he, he would teach level five. This was people who went through it. This was their first opportunity to hear him teach and to meet him. And so he was teaching in Boulder. There were probably 300 students in the meditation hall. And, you know, I hung out with him in his office before he decided to go down uh, to give the teaching. And, um, you know, these are students, almost all of whom had never met him before. And he decides uh, to, uh, to give this level five opening talk by wearing a full military uniform. So I, I'm totally freaked out that he's wearing a military uniform. And again, you, you can sort of, if, if you're interested, you can read my memoir to understand the meaning of the military uniform, why he would wear it at times, but why he chose to wear it at this particular time was um, extremely inconvenient for my sense of uh, relaxation. <laughs> yeah, well, we also should point out this moment in time, right? So not so long ago, the Vietnam War had just been kind of oh, wound down and culturally the military was a uh, the 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 kind of persona of the military military in America was uh, there was not a lot of favorability in many of these well circles, said. right? So well said. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yes, and I'm carrying that. First of all, I'm carrying my own antipathy to the military <laughs> inside mm -hmm. me, and I'm also carrying this kind of paranoia that all of these students who I have as, as a teacher and as an administrator been so carefully nurturing like little seedlings in a greenhouse to get to level five, <laughs> that they're going to all, when they see them come in and looking like a kind of a Guatemalan dictator, that they're going to leave, you know? And so, so from the time that we're sitting in the office with him in his military uniform until we walk into the meditation hall with all of these uh, students who stand up to you know, acknowledge his entrance. I, I'm I'm just completely beside myself. I mean, it's at the, it's at the same level as that original meaning, a story of uh, what happened in Vermont, but it's much bigger now because I'm feeling some sense of responsibility for the whole situation. Hmm. Well, again, to make a long story short, we finally get up to the front and he sits down, and it's my job to introduce him to the students. And I'm in such uh, so much anxiety about him sitting there looking like uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we're doing a meditation program, that I give a very long introduction, extremely long, almost to cover my anxiety. I just tell him all about his life, where he came from, and how he had to leave Tibet, and just you know, why he was here in Colorado, because the Rocky Mountains reminded him of his childhood, and going on and on, I look over at him and he looks like he's falling asleep. And I, I realized, you know, you've gone on long enough and you've got to stop. You have to stop. So I end it with this very traditional um, supplication for him to teach. And I say, now, sir, on behalf of all the uh, apprentice warriors who are gathered here tonight, I want to request you to turn the wheel of the Shambhala Dharma. And then I turn toward him. And he seems to wake up at that point, and he kind of looks over at me, and I hear him say, turn it yourself. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the entire audience hears it just as clearly as I did, and everyone bursts into laughter at my expense. Mm. I mean, at least it certainly felt that way. Mm. You know, the, that moment of public unmasking 
was probably the greatest embarrassment I've ever experienced. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, I, I sat down looking for a, a, a trap door that I could disappear into. Eventually, I had to accept that yeah, it was that's what he did. And then it was gone. And then he was teaching and he was teaching with such tenderness and such love that the, uh, you know, the uh, the cognitive dissonance of him sitting there in this military uniform and this kind of gentle, loving bath that he was giving these people, 300 people that he had never met before. It was just, you know, it was a moment that I will never, I'll never forget. And, and then I realized later that it was probably one of the greatest empowerments of my life, that he actually meant that, that he was sort of saying, stop being such a chicken and turn it yourself. Because I, I knew he could feel my anxiety and probably it was building for gosh knows how long before I finally had to introduce him and before he finally turned and said that to me. And, and you know, you never had the feeling that he was strategizing it or that he was waiting, laying in wait for you. And yet that moment of having the rug pulled out was so vivid and inescapable. This is, yeah, this is the ruthlessness of crazy wisdom. I mean, this is... There's just a, a cutting, a deep cut that liberated some part of you that was hanging on oh. too tight. Yes. Oh, there's just no question, Luke, that that's, that's what happened. And, and I think, you know, it takes a while. And I talk about this in several other experiences. Mm -hmm. It takes a while before the kind of full import. Energetically, you get it right away. But kind of the deeper level of how it's transformed your outlook toward yourself and toward your life that that takes a little bit longer to ripen but it does ripen thank you for listening to this week's episode of crazy wisdom if you like what you heard please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen this helps new people find the show and maybe more importantly it helps us grow our crazy wisdom community my hope for you is between now and the next time you listen that you try one new thing one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy. 